Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. We've got a couple of very interesting people on the show this time around. Caroline Forche's fascinating story tells of her journey to El Salvador in the lead up to the horrifics of a war beginning in 1979. We discuss some of the very brave and influential characters she encountered and also of her friendship with the great 20th century cultural critic and author Susan Sontag. And my colleague Ellen Pearson was at the Deutsche Börse Photography Prize. She caught up with the artist Laia Abril. They discussed Laia's demanding work, which predominantly surveys critical issues surrounding women's rights in general, and specifically for this exhibition, Abortion. They also discussed her emotional response to the often harrowing stories she has to research in order to make her work. But first, let's have a look at a few titles that are in Liberia this week. Uh, Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry is top of that list. Um, the punchiest of prose stylists is bang on form with this one. As with Beetlebone, Barry is for me unequaled in describing the strange psychology or subconscious effect the landscape and our environments have on us. And also I had a chat with the man himself, which will feature on, on a future podcast coming up. My Seditious Heart by Aaron Dotty Roy. Now, Aaron Dotty Roy, what can I say? My One of my favorite novels of all time is God of Small Things. So it's brilliant to get this collection of her nonfiction all together. Uh, End of Imagination is another one, which is pretty amazing. In terms of uh, her breadth of knowledge and understanding of current political situation, especially in India. Paul takes the form of a mortal girl by Andrea Lawler. Now, Maggie Nelson, Liberia favourite, calls this book hot. And the other line cover reviews include tight, deep, and smut. Um, My Sister, the Serial Killer. Again, this is another page turner by Oyunkan Braithwaite. Braithwaite is trading in some dark wit with this one. The narrator's sibling has a habit of killing off some unwanted love interests, claiming self-defense. So there you go. Another page turner and another one for the holiday bag. No doubt about it. But let's go over and talk with Carolyn Forche. back to the US but then you come back again and the the intensity of uh, the insurgency and the counterinsurgency is electrified it's it's heightening yes and at one stage you actually witness um, an individual getting taken away what was what was that like it was quite febrile you know the way you describe it is quite intense what was the only only abduction i actually was an eyewitness of. That's right, um, yeah. Because normally what happens with abductions is you either never see the person again or you'll see a body in the street, you know, being picked apart by turkey vultures. Yes. Or, or being stared at by school children. Yes. You know, um, but this one was a young, young man. He looked to be maybe even high school age, and he had a rucksack and T-shirt. And I was in the street with a Monsignor who wasn't Monsignor Romero. He was another Monsignor, but he was a friend of Monsignor Romero. And we were walking along talking, and I don't remember where we were going. We were going from one place to another place, and he was very quiet. And we're, But the whole street was alive, you know, with mm. sounds and vendors and buses. And all of a sudden, this Jeep Cherokee sque- squeals to a halt in front of us, 
and men jump out and take this kid with a rucksack and throw him into the Jeep Cherokee in the back. Doors slam, it squeals away. And everything freezes in the street. Everybody had frozen. Some of the vendors had pulled down the security gates. People had disappeared into the alleys. All of a sudden, it was Monsignor Uriastre and me, you know, standing there. And, and all he said was, we must pray for that boy. But the chances that anyone would ever see that boy again were not very good. Crazy. So we were just frozen. I remember being frozen and, and as if time was stopped for a second and sound had stopped. Yes. You know, it was just very yes. like a vacuum, really quiet. Yes. And, and then the street gradually resumed. People knew what had happened. Everyone knew that that had, you know, what that was. What that meant. Mm, yeah. And the night curfews as well, you know, this, the, the paramilitaries, they've enforced these night curfews. So again, when the, 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 the uh, tension is ramped up. And you... They declared a state of siege. Yeah, yeah. and you are you're involved in a, in a couple of very, very um, close, close calls. Um, yes, I had encounters with uh, the death squads. Uh, there were, I, I would say, three occasions when I felt their proximity a little too closely. Um, and one of them was because I was out after curfew and interviewing a man who was about to defect from the Christian Democratic Party and leave the country. Um, and he would later become uh, part of this political, uh, political spokesperson for the FMLN, for the guerrilla fighters. But he, he wasn't that yet. He was mm -hmm. still in the country and he was about to leave and I was you know, having the last interview that I could get with him. And so, you know, we went too long. We stayed too late. And and that's when it all happened. I don't want to give too, too much, much away. Too much away, yeah, know, let's but, not. But that was, uh, that was the closest call because I, that was the moment, you know, when I actually, I thought that was it. What did that feel like? Each time I thought it was it, including that time, uh, I wanted to be, you know, for a second, I wished I was anywhere else in the world. You, you wish you could d dig a hole in the floor and disappear. You wish that there was anything you could do to not be there. And I, I thought about my parents, you know, who were sleeping at home and had no idea where I was, you know, because I never told them in the beginning that I yes. went to Salvador. And, um, you know, you think about all, things race through your mind and then and you feel... Uh, shocked a bit that this might be the end of everything. And completely helpless. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, each time it were, it was all right. I survived it, and so I I write about those periods because that's part of the story. It's part of how, what I learned, and uh, so it has to be there. What what I really was hoping that um, because so much time has passed, and because I see so many of the younger generations, millennials and younger, mm. and um, very desirous of doing something in the world and, uh, and of being active. And I see that spirit among them very strongly. Um, it may just be that they're the ones who come and talk to me, but I wrote this at, for, so that they could maybe see how it happened to someone else, yes. you know? Like what that process was like and what the pitfalls were and what the dangers were and how one copes with that and what one learns. And, and I thought maybe it will be useful. 
uh, for them to go. Th that's why I wrote it in my young self rather than my yes. older self. And I also wrote it because there were, you know, we have a many, many, many Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Hondurans coming to our southern border now. And you know, we have a this so-called border crisis, yes. which is being responded to with a, a bullying uh, president who wants to put up a wall and throw everyone, including children, into detention camps without their parents. Absolutely. And so so uh, over the years, many Salvadorans have fled the country, and um, they've come to my office at various universities where I've taught, and they've said, you know, can you talk to me? My parents won't tell me anything about what happened. I, right. I want to know why we're here in the US. You know, why did they leave? What went on then? And I, so this, I thought, okay, this is a way of answering that too. You know, so I, I wrote it for them. But it's also a way of maybe helping people um, in North America and Europe to understand some of the kinds of conditions that people are fleeing. Yes. Why they're why they decide to pick up and run away from yes. their countries because people don't do that. I mean, they don't just you know leave where their grandparents are are buried and leave all of their friends and relatives and yes. just run through a, a desert or or hop on a rubber dinghy in the sea mm. for no reason. They they do it because what's behind them is so much more terrifying than anything they can imagine. Now you're also a poet. I think we'll, 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 we'll leave El Salvador. Yeah, that's how it all started, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and I, I, it's fair to say, but your experience in El Salvador and the people you met and the intensity of that has, has influenced your, your poetry and your outlook. And you've, you've also made some incredible relationships in, in the US, in particular Susan Sontag, oh, yeah. who's... Was Susan an influence on you, on your poetry? Um, I think Susan was an influence on the necessity of seriousness. Mm. Um, you know, I had been writing poetry since I was nine years old, and I'd already published a book of poems before I went to El Salvador, and that's mm. why Lionel came to yeah. ask me. But um, my work was in, that poetry was evolving continually parallel to all of this education and the world awareness. But what happened was in 1981, I, had, I was very freshly back from El Salvador, and the war had started. And there was a very large uh, meeting in Toronto, Canada, that was sponsored by Amnesty International. Mm. And it drew writers from all over the world who were concerned about human rights. Susan Sontag among them. She, she and Joseph Brodsky came from the United States. I was the only other US American there. And so I was assigned to be on a panel about the, po the poet and the state, the poet's responsibility, political writing, and mm -hmm. so on. And, mm -hmm. I, and Susan Sontag was also on the panel. So we had um, a confrontation. I'd not, I didn't know her yet. I just, right. we met and we were all introduced on this long table, everyone at a microphone. And I was 31 years old and she was Susan Sontag. But I disagreed with something she was saying fiercely that had to do with it being engagé as a literary person. And so when it was my turn to speak at the microphone, I took her on, you know, and wow. I, I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going to tell her, I'm going to tell her why I disagree with her. And I was scared. I was trembling. And I thought, I've, I've got to control myself. I have, my voice has to be steady, you know. So, so I said my piece and the panel kept going. 
And when we all stood up at the end, when it was over, she walked over to me and she said, we must have coffee. Uh. <laughs> and I thought, she Amazing. doesn't mind. She doesn't mind. Not only didn't she mind, but what she really wanted to have a serious conversation. Yes. And she didn't want someone who would just agree with her yes. all the time. And so, you know, we had coffee. And over the years, she was very, I would say, very supportive of me and... I always considered her a, a really um, brilliant, brilliant woman, but she also had a, a soft and tender side and even an insecure side, you know, yes. and I would see that too. And she would, there was one uh, friend of mine was, uh, had brought her an old photograph of herself. This was toward the end of her life. And she was sitting on this sofa and she, looked, she unwrapped the photograph and looked at it and it was her young self. And she stared at this photograph and said, I was beautiful, wasn't I? I had no idea. <laughs> and it was so poignant, you know, because wow. she really, truly didn't appreciate how really stunning she was and how much that was part of how people perceived her. So because she was a woman and she was so intelligent and erudite, she was bilingual, she could take you on equally in French and English. Mm -hmm. She did that in Canada. A man stood up and, and addressed her in French and challenged her in French, and she just flipped into French wow. and, and answered him. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to this forthcoming biography um, that's going to be about her life, and uh, this will be published here by Penguin UK, and yeah. I can't wait to read I it. I know, neither I, can I. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, had, we saw each other on a number of panels. I saw her... Uh, we were together on a panel at Cooper Union just before mm. she got the news it, that that finally that she was dying. Mm. She didn't look well that night to me, and she nearly didn't come to the panel. But she said, "Well, how could I miss this?" You know, and and so she was there in a very fragile state, but still just as strong and lucid as she'd ever been. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is it is that thing, isn't it? I've always thought it as well, you know, in terms of her reputation. I mean, formidable intellect, one of the great intellects of the 20th century, really. I mean, um, you know, her on photography is probably one of the key texts, uh, which has never been surpassed, in my view. But it, it, it is that it, she was a woman writing, you know, at the, the height of her intellectual powers the 70s, and she had to assert herself. That was the only way I felt that she could, you know, hold, hold her ground. Was Is she, that fair to say? I, yes, well, she, she really had no choice if she wanted mm. to be, if she wanted to manifest her intellect in the world, and she wanted to be a writer. She was, she fiercely desired to be a novelist. Right. You know, and she did write novels, yeah. The Volcano Lover and so on. Yeah. She, uh, but she was in an environment, and I saw that environment and experienced it myself. There's a lot of misogyny in that environment among public intellectuals and among writers. So she was a, a heroine to me, what they call a shero now, I guess, in the States. But, you know, someone who really blazed a path of this is how you do it. You don't back down. You, you know, she said to me when I was I was attacked in the U.S. for some poems that I wrote about Salvador, you know, in my second book of poems, The Country Between Us. And yeah. she took me aside and she said, my she said, you know, 
writing well is the best revenge. Yes. <laughs> so wow. I thought, well, all right, you know, but that better said than done, you know. <laughs> um, and I had to, I had to grow uh, into my own, um, I guess, self assurance that right. she seemed to she seemed to have on an intellectual level from the beginning. Yes. Whatever she lacked in assurance otherwise, she never lacked intellectually that I saw. Super interesting chat with Carolyn Forche, such a warm and brilliant individual. And do check out her book, What You Have Heard Is True, a stunning report on that period and the El Salvador Civil War. But now let's listen to Ellen Pearson in conversation with artist Laya Abril. I did, during okay. the referendum. Wow, how yeah. did you find that? It was incredible, because I tried to have it, actually we trained Northern Ireland, which was definitely impossible, and then I trained Ireland, and it was not happening, and then this festival for Ireland uh, asked me to do it uh, exactly during the month of the referendum, so I guess it was it was meant to be, the, mm. the referendum. Uh, it was incredible, because I was first very, very surprised when I was arriving with the bus from the station, from the airport. I was not going to Dublin, I was going south. started to see all these um, ads from the non-campaign. And it was massive. There was so many of them that my first thought was like, oh, we're screwed. Like, <laughs> that this is, this is not going to end well yeah. for the, for, you know, for the voting. Yeah. Um, and then... A lot of people would come to the show and even like politicians, super interesting. But then a lot of young people would come to me and say, oh, it's great because I'm still deciding what to vote. And I was like, what? Like, is it, they have a, a, a law that is almost as well as the one in El Salvador. Like, it's not like, it's not even in the three grants of the UN. That's the kind of law mm, they had. Yeah. Like, how can you even be sure at least about yeah. that? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Although it's amazing that they're coming to your show and they don't know what they're going to vote and then hopefully there's a bit of enough Yeah, it was effect. a very straightforward, uh, you know, like, cost consequence. But still, I was like... But that's amazing to be exposed to that. Like, while you're doing your show, there's just, like, so much emotion there. To be exposed to that sort of, like, they're so conditioned to be like, what do, you know, what do I pick? You know, I don't know what to vote. And then they come to your show. That's quite amazing for you to be exposed to that. Sugar shows every election. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we have one in Slovenia and they were voting for a, a candidate. One of the candidates for the presidency, was she was really, really against abortion. And so weeks before uh, having the show, they were these groups were projecting these terrible images of like death fetuses in the church, oh God. which they do. And the show was in the same square and it's this kind of gallery that has glass so you could see what was inside. I was like, guys, are you sure it's going to be all right? Like, these people are nuts. Um, and it was fine. Like, lots of people came. Yeah. It was great, actually. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I read that, like, maybe your approaches are quite objective. That is that, do you feel like... I wouldn't say objective because I don't really believe yeah. in that concept. Yeah. Uh, especially coming from being trained as a journalist. Yeah. Just destroy the myth. <laughs> yeah, objective. <laughs> it's factual. Like yeah. uh, what are, the texts that you find are, are facts, uh, but all the rest, it's it's far from objective. Like mm. I do have an intention mm. to trigger different yeah. kinds of emotions and ideas, 
But it is factual. So those are the repercussions when you don't have access to abortion. Like, mm. it's, it's, it's like that people die, people go to prison, mm. like people is forced from motherhood, like it's bad. And so, yeah, you, I guess you can call it broadly, like, objective in that sense, but the images and everything that is behind is, is far from being objective, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the way that you were describing that, like, with the, the glass and they could see, and it feels like this quite, like, quiet rebellion. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, I think it's a great way of doing it. I have an amazing picture that uh, the galleries took after I was gone already. Um, she took a picture of this nun... <laughs> visiting the show oh my god amazing and it, the, the picture is so good also and I have one audio piece that is not here in the show but it, you can find it at the end of the book which is this confession because the Pope had this idea during the day the year of the holy year the, the jubileo um, he said that any priest would be able to forgive an abortion in a confession until then he was the only person who could do that I think he's extended, so I think you can still do it. Uh, so I asked a woman in, 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 in Italy who had had an abortion to confess and to record the confession for me. Wow. And you can hear it in the show. In some of the shows when I make the yeah. installation, you can hear it. Otherwise, you can read it in the, in the book. And, and she was listening to the confession. I would kill to know what she thinks about it. Yeah. Because she was definitely interested. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying she changed her mind. Who knows? He, she might even be pro-abortion. They are just not able to say it. But yeah. yeah, that was that was kind of like an epic moment to understand that actually my goal, which was having this gray area people that I call, yeah. feel enough comfortable to be part of the conversation. Yeah. That might not be my goal in the next chapter, which I don't look for that kind of thing, yeah. or I'm thinking about other kind of target, or my emotions get in the middle, which they are right now, so it's a little bit confusing. Yeah. But for this particular chapter, I think that day, seeing that picture was quite, uh, yeah. Something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. And um, the idea of your emotions getting in the way, how, like, how do you deal with that? Like, you know, you said that... Um, you're like losing faith in humanity a bit from doing this new thing. Like, are there any moments where you're restored, that the faith is restored, or is it like just quite brutal, this this research? I don't know. Like, the problems with emotion is when they block me. Like, it's an interesting balance for me to have enough emotions and enough clarity. Not that when you're emotional, you're not clear. You are. But sometimes it's overwhelming, so I, I, it's too much, and then I, I, I have to stop. Uh, and I need to research deeply, so it's, I don't know enough yet to actually do or produce. So it's a tricky it's a tricky methodology. And I don't know, maybe the solution in this case is to actually embrace those emotions and do something much more from the guts, mm. which I don't know, because again, what I am looking for at the end of all of this is finding answers for mm. myself honestly not that I'm looking answers for other people but I need to understand why these things happen and you know so yeah I I, I don't remember what you asked <laughs> <laughs> how you deal with the the emotion I uh, guess I don't that's the problem like I don't there's no way because for a long time I felt I was a filter of many things and I was putting some light in like very shady and dark as things in the case of abortion i was visualizing something that is sort of invisible invisible in a way rape is also sort of invisible 
So I need to filter those emotions through me and th that information, which at the end of the day is the same thing. And then I create something. But it's like, <laughs> it's like the filter is stuck <laughs> mm -hmm. because it's just too much. So it makes me slower and it's okay. I go to therapy and I'm going to... And, and I think we should start talking. I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends who used to be or they still are war photographers. Mm. And, and and we talk, a, in journalism, people talk quite a lot about the PTSD of yeah. conflict. But we don't talk about the PTSD in art or, yeah. or in these kind of projects. Yeah. Like the psychologists do and doctors do. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm always very open about it. Like, I go through therapy every week. Otherwise, I would just get yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. so consuming. Like... Yeah reading about this kind of thing every day like talking to these women like also like being equipped enough to talk to these women like you and know I mean the sense that like my always my fear was to get too cold because obviously yeah. you don't want that no yeah. that's why sometimes they have these doctors who the surgeons that are not emotional which I don't believe actually but uh <laughs> but I can't do that because the, the less yeah, the, the coldest I get, the, the less effective my work is. And, and I'm not also that person. Like, I would yeah. never be able to do it anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask you, actually, where where you feel like your work sits in relation to documentary photography. Because, you know, I'm, uh, I know quite a lot of war journalists as well. And there's this... And also, I, I studied documentary photography. And there was the... I remember one of the first things they said was, like, if you're in a situation, like, in a war zone... At first, you take the picture and then you help. And from that first moment, I was like, "This isn't for me. I'm gonna be doing something different along this along this path." Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's like I feel like your work kind of breaks down that kind of mode of documentary where you have to be detached from your subjects. Like it is emotional, and I, I think the reason I cried is because I could feel your emotion, even though it does still feel quite objective. Well, it's just, I don't have the solution, but in this particular project, I have this picture about the Zika spread in North Brazil, in which they know, they don't know 100% if it was that the case, but the fact it was women were having these problems in their pregnancy with this microcephalia developing in the small brains in babies, and I'd see the pictures of the babies with these big eyes, these small heads, and I was instead photographing the mosquito Zika in a lab in El Salvador because the moment I was using those kinds of pictures, I was going a little bit against what my point was, was my goal was to people to stay as long as possible in the show and to get enough information so they might actually have a different thoughts around the subject. And if I was using very suggestive or very provocative or very... And don't don't get me started about re-victimizing uh, women, portraying them in a specific way. So every decision has a reason behind. It might not be the, the perfect one, but for me, that was very important. And I would do things different, honestly. In the last five years, a lot has changed. And I am going to apply that to my next project. I don't think what I do is documentary photography anymore, because first, I don't follow the rules of documentary photography, or at least the more traditional documentary photography. And... And I don't feel free enough to do things that, for me, it's not about having that image in the way they want it. It's for me, it's about being honest and 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 being and being careful with my subjects, which I am 
100%, but I don't think in order to get that, I need to follow precisely those rules. I understand rules and I think they're important, but it's so yeah, I don't do that anymore. I, and what I do now is probably more considered art and mm. I feel much more comfortable. Mm. While still I have a very precise ethical code about how I do things, even probably much more careful than many documentary mm. photographers that have been mm. done in the past, which is not a competition, but I am critical with documentary photography, especially especially in these kind of subjects that I do understand. I don't understand war, but I do understand this, and I'm very uncomfortable with the way people have been depicting it, even yeah. though under those rules yeah. of ethical. But I think it's changing, and, and, and I'm, I'm not against it, obviously. It's just like it's not yeah where I find myself the best way to tell what I want to tell nowadays. Yeah, and I feel like if something comes from the heart, you have to give everything to it and you have to give that emotional side. Like, I feel like it's impossible, really, to stay detached. And I don't know, what do you feel about I, I, that? I just don't think it's ethical to be in detached. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's what it makes it... Not, like, yeah. trying to be invisible in a situation of drama is yeah. why, for me, it makes it wrong. Yeah, and without going down, like, a stereotypical route, like, documentary photography up until, like, quite recently was very male-dominated, yeah. you know? So do you think that's, Still like... Is. Yeah. Do you it think is. that's partly why this whole, like, we must be detached, you know, that thing comes from? Well, I think it's patriarchy and yeah. affects in many layers of everything we do and definitely it's not about pointing men because you find female f- documentary photographers using patriarchy, patriarchal... Um, behaviors in the way they photograph as well so it's not to target men in particular i think it's a systematic problem um but yeah 100 percent. like it didn't make any sense to me like why that's the thing i, I was photographing a mass funeral in the srebrenica in 2007 and i've been living there for months like i, I knew the people refugees camps I knew a lot about the place and I was crying while I was photographing and I was understanding that that would never be my job because I never would be able to really understand what these people are been com- going through. Mm. Not that you need to take yeah. a picture, but it was important to me to take the picture. And and that's what I quit that moment, what, that kind of, of, of approach. And I didn't know back then, but I knew, I know now that what happened is I didn't want to document it. I wanted to transform it which is not documentary photography. Well, there you go. So vitally important to get these perspectives from both our guests today. As always, do get down to Liberia to grab any of the titles we've discussed on today's show and check out the cultural program on secondhome.io. See you next time.